Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we are in Luke chapter 13, the first nine verses. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the, pa- the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We live in a broken world where bad things happen. And I don't think that's controversial. If you've lived any length of time, you've seen it all around you. We might disagree on why or what part God has in it, but it's unmistakable. Life is full of tragedy, and we are deeply impacted by it. Freak accidents, natural disasters, various atrocities. Again, it's all around us. I, I remember in Dece- on, on December 26, 2004, hearing about an earthquake just off the coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. I know you probably, if you're old enough, you remember that. And that triggered a tsunami that swept across 14 countries on two different continents and killed over 227,000 people. It was absolutely devastating. Well, this story was of particular interest to me because just six years before, Ann and I had traveled to a little island off the coast of Thailand called Pipi Island. And Pipi was this beautiful little resort island, and, and we had an amazing time there. But this particular tsunami swept through that place. And, and I, w- I was looking at a video, and it was a perfect day, perfect weather, perfect location. And there was a, a, a video of someone just strolling out in the water. And one moment they were thinking, this is the best day of my life. I can't believe I get to do this. And the next moment, it was like a tide that came in and just swept them away. They were gone. 
in an instant with no possible way to prepare. 5,400 people died on PP Island, this tiny little island, and half of them were foreigners. 37 different nationalities, and half of them were locals who lived there and served the tourist industry. But what a tragic event. Again, it just came out of nowhere, and it was done. We all have a sense that life is precious, and, and when life or multiple lives are snuffed out, it shakes us to the core, doesn't it? But it doesn't always shake us in the right way. An article about the recent brutal slayings of four University of Idaho students came out just recently, just last week, and it said this, TV host riles Moscow with appearance at crime scene. You see, this TV host who had been following this crime and, and talking about the details of it over the weeks was sitting at a folding table with the victim's house in the background. And to many people in Moscow, it was incredibly offensive. In, a, in response, a scathing tweet read this way, our tragedy is not your backdrop. To, to many people in Moscow, it felt like she was grasping for an additional angle to keep people clicking. Now, I don't know what her motives were, but she was responding to a tragedy. What do you do when you hear of tragedy? What goes through your mind? If you're like me, you probably have many emotions. Sorrow over what happened. Concern over the victims and their families. Maybe also just excitement and, and thank, thankfulness that it didn't happen to your family or you. Or maybe fear. Man, if this happened there, why couldn't it happen to me? When is it going to happen? What's right around the corner for me? Or, or maybe a desire to know the details. And at times, possibly a detached, morbid curiosity. But we all respond to tragedy. One way or another, we respond. Now, our text today doesn't answer all the questions that we have with regard to tragedy at all. The Bible does have those answers, I assure you. But our text today has one simple and profound focus, and, and this is it. When you see tragedy, turn to the Lord. And there's three points. The question Jesus asks, the answer Jesus gives, and an illustration he provides. So, so a question, an answer, and an illustration. So first, the, the question that Jesus asks. Jesus, the, we're in the middle of a section that has a lot to say about judgment. And, and Jesus has been preaching. He's been preaching about the coming judgment, and he's been suggesting an urgency. He's been saying, you mu we must be urgent. And, and then in that context, people who were right there with him, they brought to him a current event. And it was a tragic current event. And that's in verse 1. So look with me at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That's a tragic event. We're not told much about it. That's, those are the only details we have. But... We can infer, here's what happened. It was during a Passover, and people were traveling into Jerusalem from all over, and they would have been visiting the temple, and a group of Galileans 
came with their sacrifices into the temple, participated with the killing of the animals, and Pilate sent a group of soldiers right into the temple and slaughtered them right then and there. We don't know why. And so it's, it's not important to our, our, our text here. But here's what a commentator said. It would be as if terrorists came into a church and shot worshipers as they were partaking of communion, thus mingling their blood with the communion elements. It's that horrible, horrifying. It could happen any time, and it has happened in churches, various churches in the world. So a group of people come to Jesus, and they're looking for a response. This is a tough scenario. Now, we, we know from the way they're approaching Jesus that they clearly think that God was behind this tragedy. This did not happen apart from God's careful watch. God was in the details, and they know it. And so they're wrestling with the problem of evil. How can a good God let innocent people suffer? They must not be innocent. But Jesus doesn't go there. Instead, he asks them a question. And, and here's the question in verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Let me paraphrase his question. This is what he says to him: You think these people must have been worse sinners than others, don't you? They're convinced. This happened to them. It didn't happen to us. They must be bad. We must be good. And Jesus calls them out. Jesus answered his own question with an emphatic no, but that's the next point. We'll get there. And so far from being put out, Jesus proceeded to describe another tragedy. So in verse 4, he brings up another. He's like, oh yeah, well, here's another tragedy. And he brings it up in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Tragic event number two was a freak accident. It would be akin to a failed construction project. Scaffolding fell down, 18 people, all they were doing. They went to work that day, and they thought it would be just like the days previous, and then the scaffolding fell, and they were killed instantly. Again, no, no warning, nothing. It's just done. They're dead. And Jesus said again, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. And once again, what he's saying is this, you think these people must have been worse sinners than the others, don't you? Tragic event number one, crime against humanity. Tragic event number two, freak accident. Both sudden and without warning. And Jesus doesn't deny God's involvement. God is involved. But what is he doing? Now, these individuals believe that this tragedy revealed something about the victims and something about the survivors. Tragedy equals judgment, and therefore the victims must be evil, and I must be good because I was spared. It's an attitude that's prevalent among us, and it was certainly prevalent among the Jews. Remember back, even before Jesus came, remember back in Job's day, Job had disaster strike, one disaster after another. And, and Job's friends came around him to, to encourage him. And, and what did his friends say? The friends sat there and encouraged him for a while, and then they opened their mouths. 
And when they opened their mouths, they said, surely you must have done something wrong. You, God doesn't do bad things. He doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. So, so you've done something wrong. You need to repent. And then they spent chapters trying to explore with Job where he needed to repent. It was not helpful. Now, now they weren't the only ones that had this attitude. We have it too. It's called karma. I'm not saying we would agree with karma, but not in name, but in practice, we do. It's, it's an attitude like this. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. What goes around comes around. Now, to be sure, there is a sense in which you reap what you sow. And so there are, we can spur on our circumstances, to be sure. But Jesus is, is going somewhere else with this. And so point number one, the question, you think these people must have been worse sinners than you, don't you? Well, now let's look at the answer Jesus gives. It's found in both verse 3 and verse 5. And so he repeats this answer word for word twice after each tragic event. And so I'll just read it. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Was it, was it their fault, in a sense? Or are they worse sinners than you? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In light of what seems like senseless tragedies, Jesus asks one question and gives one answer, although he states them twice. He says it two times. But it's really the same question and the same answer. And this is a, a literary device. Remember back with Joseph and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's dreams? Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh had two dreams. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the, the, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will bring it about shortly. And that's why it happened twice. Well, like Pharaoh's dream, Jesus has doubled his question and answer intentionally. Tragedy is coming. And, we, and, and it's coming without delay. We need to be ready for it. Again, it's emphatic. And it's, it's very strong language. So let me paraphrase Jesus' answer. When you see tragedy... Don't draw a line from the tragedy to the people involved. But when you see tragedy, draw a straight line from the tragedy to you. He's calling us to see tragedy and draw that line straight to each one of us. That's a proper response. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Bible is clear. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So we are all sinners. I love Brett's call to worship this morning. Yes, we're sinners. We sin. In fact, we've sinned today already. Oh, but for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. For redeeming us. But Jesus is calling us to meditate on something that we would, it would be bad for us to just skip over and move on. 
We need to sit here and we need to think about this. Make no mistake, an ominous cloud of death hovers over all. And by the way, I, I mentioned this last week, but this is, not, this is not any one of the pastors at GCF's pet projects. It's, if we were preaching, preaching topically, we, we, we wouldn't move to this subject every week. But it seems like we've been here for a while because that's where we are in the text and we want to be true to God's word. Well, Jesus wants us to hang over this thought. Judgment is coming. It's coming. Jonathan Edwards put it this way in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is doing now, or what he intends to do. And he finds security in that. One more quote. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. Do you see the urgency? That's the urgency of Jesus in these last few weeks. So what are we to do? We are to repent. And the way we are to repent is, and, and again, just a, a brief comment, we don't just repent to escape wrath. We repent into the loving arms of Jesus. There's such, even in the midst of all of this judgment we find in these two chapters, there's this incredible thing that Jesus says in chapter 12. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What God has in store for us as Christians is beyond anything we can imagine. It's an outpouring of love and favor and kindness that we can't imagine. So when we repent, it's not just a repenting from, it's a repenting to. Repent from the grasp of hell. It's coming. And it's coming to each one of us. Some of us might meet a tragic end. Some of us might meet a, a, die in our old age. But death is coming upon all, and we will face the judgment seat of Christ. But we repent from that. Repent to the loving arms of Jesus himself. So what are we to do? We're to repent. One quote, very simple. One theologian said this, Repentance in Christianity means a sincere turning away in both the mind and the heart from self to God. It involves a change of mind that results in a change of action. Repentance involves really three things. Contrition or contrition, confession and change. So contrition, the sins you and I can be so flippant about 
are the very sins that put Jesus on the cross to experience the divine wrath of God. An eternal weight of judgment Jesus experienced in our place for the sins that, that we just kind of think little of. When true repentance occurs, we are cut to the heart and we see the price that our sins cost Jesus. So there is a contrition, but there's also a confession. James 5 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's an element of contrition, but there's also an element of confession. We confess our sins before God. And we tell Him, Lord, I have sinned. We own it. We don't make excuses for it. We call it what it is. It's sin. Please forgive me. But then also there's a change of mind that results in a change of action. If you really have contrition about your sin, and if you really turn to Jesus Christ in confession, and you confess your sins, then that change of mind actually comes with a change of heart and a change of life. It changes how we live. There is a change. There's a change in action. So when you see tragedy, this is the main point, turn to the Lord. The question Jesus asked, do you think these people were worse offenders than the rest of you? The answer is no. But the answer Jesus gives, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now Jesus ends with an illustration. He provides an illustration. And that's in verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So it's a, a very simple parable. There is a fig tree. It's planted in a vineyard. That's the best place you can plant a fig tree. They grow in the wild. They don't do as well. But in a vineyard with careful attention and care, it's the best place for this tree. And so he planted it in the vineyard at the instruction of the owner. Great location, fertile vineyard, and a very attentive vine dresser or gardener. So not only is it in the right place, but there's also an attentive gardener. So this fig tree had every chance to succeed. So the owner of the vineyard repeatedly came seeking fruit on it. He expects fruit and found none. Next, he wants it cut down. Cut it down. Now, don't miss the point. We've been given every opportunity for our lives to be fruitful. And God expects our lives to be fruitful. It isn't a, a bonus in Christianity to have a fruitful life. It's the base level expectation. God has blessed us and he anticipates good fruit. And he won't accept anything less. Listen to his words. Cut it down now. Cut it down now. Do you know there's a fiery side to God? There's a compassionate side and a loving side, and some people would like to focus all on that. And it's infinite. So how can we not focus on that? In fact, however much we do focus on the love and mercy of God, we're not doing it enough. There's another side to God. God is a God of wrath. He's angry about sin. 
And, and, and oftentimes we miss that. But then sometimes others can focus on that too much and we can just all be about wrath and miss his love. But somehow in this parable, we see both. God is both a just judge, but he's also a merciful savior. I mean, listen to Luke, just the progression in Luke. In chapter three, it says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just last, last chapter, chapter 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Do you see the intensity of that? I came to judge. And, and there's a longing that it were already kindled. Does that reconcile with the God you have in your mind? I swear to you, heaven and earth is my witness, that is the God of the Bible. But that's not it. If we were to stop right now, well, let me look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? That accurately represents what God is like, in part. He is a just judge, and he will not apologize when his wrath falls. It will be part of his glory. God is looking for fruit, and we better have it. Both internal and external. Internal fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God is looking for those characteristics in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And if, if you're a parent, do you, I mean, do you find that if you're married, if you have siblings, if you have friends, if you have coworkers, and yet, these are characteristics of a true Christian. Gentleness and self-control. So there's internal fruit, but there's also external fruit. Growing in godliness, gaining spiritual ground against sin, growing more active in ministry and serving the body of Christ, becoming more astute evangelists and living lives that influence others spiritually. These are the types of things that God is looking for, that God expects, that God is working in us to produce. Now, if the parable ended here, run for the hills. It would be disaster, wouldn't it? But the parable does not end here. There's another key player, the vine dresser, the gardener. And, and look with me at verse 8 and 9. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, loosen the soil. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Do you see the work of an advocate? The owner says, the owner would have waited several years to give this fig tree time to produce fruit. Usually it takes about three years. But then he came back, and we get the sense that he came back, fig trees produce fruit twice a year. And so you, you, you figure he would have come back at least twice a year looking for fruit after the time of fruit bearing would be, 
would, had, had arrived, and it didn't produce fruit. Three years he kept coming looking for fruit, and yet there's this advocate that says, well, forget it. It's not going to happen. That's not what he says, is it? He says, he says, wait, wait, give it more time, give it another year, and I will do everything possible. Fig trees don't even need that kind of care. He is going over the top to care for this fig tree so that it would produce fruit. Isn't it incredible? One Greek scholar put it this way. The man became emotional, as it appears from the words. Then, if it bears fruit afterwards. At this point, there was, as it were, a lump in his throat, so that he could not even finish the sentence. Finally, a few additional words issued from his lips. But if not, you may cut it down. This gardener cares deeply in doing whatever he possibly can so that this tree would bear fruit. How are you going to respond to this gardener? How am I going to respond to this gardener? The loving care. Fruit will be demanded. And if you are alive and breathing here today, there's still time. There's time. Do you see this? This is incredible mercy. He's not just throwing daggers at us. He's saying, respond. Respond today. There is time. But listen again to the last few words. But if not, you can cut it down. One scholar put it this way. The, the parable's power comes through the suspense it generates. Will fruit emerge in time to thwart the axe? How will this season of second chances play itself out? What will come of the gardener's efforts? And you see the question is just lingering in the air. We don't know. We don't know. He ends with this. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. That day is coming. And so here's the main point. When you see tragedy, turn to the Lord without delay. And it doesn't take a rocket science scientist to kind of figure this out and go through the hoops and get this repentance just right. Just turn to Jesus. Whether you've never turned to him and you're not a Christian, turn to him and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus bled and died on the cross so that I could be made right. How is it that I've ignored him all my life? Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Please transfer the authority of my life from me to you. I surrender. That's all he's calling us to. But if you are a Christian here, our tendency is to point to the other person. Man, I, just, I sure hope my son or daughter hears this, or I, I sure hope that person or that person who's wronged me comes to a place of repentance. But we're called to live lives repenting every day. There is a one-time repentance that solves the issue forever. But then there's an ongoing daily repentance that just owns up to it and says, God, I've failed again, and owns up in public as well. Please work with me in my fellowship group. Help me, pray with me in, in community groups with a Christian brother or sister. I don't want to do this alone. I need help. Please help me. And we confess to one another. We confess to God. And then we turn to him. 
When you see tragedy, turn to the Lord without delay. An invitation stands before us all, and we would do well to listen. Flee from wrath and flee to the loving arms of the Savior who suffered the greatest tragedy in all of history, the crucifixion of the innocent Son of God, second person in the Trinity. He tasted death for all of us. So yes, death is still knocking on the door, and it will be sooner for some of us than others, but it will come, and it will come to every one of us. But death, if you've turned to Christ and repented of your sins, then death has completely lost its sting because the sting of death is sin, which is once and for all removed in Christ Jesus. Put your faith in Christ this morning. If you're a Christian, put it in him again. Trust him. Thank him for all that he's done for us. Again, what, a, what an incredible mercy to have Yet again, this warning section of Scripture, it's just saying, I'm right here. He's just getting our attention, and that's what tragedy does. Again, one day, a person's walking peacefully in the best place on earth, and a moment later, they're gone. We cannot control that. And again, we're not just fleeing wrath. We're being invited into a relationship with Jesus of infinite joy to come and great joy in the meantime. We get a down payment now. In your presence, O oh God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Come enjoy relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your mercy to us. Lord, we thank you for hard passages. We thank you that we can just see you pleading with us to be restored into a loving relationship with the creator of the universe, one who longs to serve us at the table. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, any child here who's just been leaning on the faith of their parents, Oh God, let this be the day of salvation. Any husband here who's just dragged here by his wife, oh God, may this be the day of salvation. Any wife who's just trying to keep up appearances but knows it's, their experience with you is shallow and empty, oh God, let this be the day of salvation. Anybody caught in sin that is destroying them and they know it, oh God, let this be the day of turning back to you for fresh forgiveness and joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now.